from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The drug trial that determined whether this drug was effective enrolled 3,285 persons around the world, of whom only 19 were black. Like, why are we not being asked? And if we are being asked, why aren't we continuing our participation? I'm Sarah Fenske. Black Americans are about twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's disease as white ones, but clinical studies have tended to include mostly white participants. Dr. Joy Ballsberry is on a mission to change that. The professor at Washington University School of Medicine recently received a $3.4 million grant from the National Institute of Aging to enroll 2,000 black research participants from Missouri and Illinois for Alzheimer's and other dementia-related studies. And that's only the latest development in WashU Medical School's quest to crack the mysteries of Alzheimer's. The university recently received commitments of an additional $11.5 million to pioneer a clinical trial aimed at preventing Alzheimer's in those most vulnerable to it. And joining us now to share more about this work is Dr. John Morris. Dr. Morris leads Washington University's Charles F. and Joanne Knight Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Dr. Morris, welcome. It's nice to be here. Thank you. And we're also joined today by Dr. Joy Ballsberry. She is an associate professor of neurology at Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Ballsberry, welcome. Thank you so much. So talking about Alzheimer's, this is such a big subject. Dr. Ballsberry, what do we know about who gets it and who doesn't? So in some ways, I think that, that Dr. Morris might be more qualified to answer that question than me. Um, since I'm not a neurologist, I'm an epidemiologist. So I count and sort very well. But, you know, one of the things that we're learning is that the greatest disease burden seems to be happening in communities of color. So when we think about the disease burden in these communities of color, um, it ends up impacting many of the things that we do. And as an African-American woman, this is something that's really pivotal to me. And so we think about um, the fact that the disease burden, that's the cost of the disease, that's caregiving, that's even um, receiving access to the appropriate and quality care, which impact overall wellness when someone should get a diagnosis or of Alzheimer's disease or, or one of the related dementias. Um, and so maybe I should possibly pass the microphone to vir uh, virtually to Dr. Morris so that he can expound. Yeah, Dr. Morris, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I want to uh, point out that uh, last year, 2021, finally, after decades of trying to understand Alzheimer's disease and the risks for developing it, we had two really momentous developments that are quite positive. First, there now is a blood test that helps to identify whether an individual has Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease in the general community often is misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all, so getting a reasonably priced and accessible blood test will be a real game changer in improving diagnosis. And second, we have a new drug that was approved by the Food and Drug Administration last June 
that removes the brain lesions that we think are the trigger for Alzheimer's disease. So this is the first time we've had a new drug that attacks the disease process itself. So these are really, as I said, very positive developments. But coming back to the idea of people of color, the drug trial that determined whether this drug was effective in removing the lesions of Alzheimer's disease enrolled 3,285 persons around the world of whom only 19 were black. So less than 1% of all people in the study were a people of color. That, and that so seems, it, Dr. Morris, just to break in here, that seems shocking to me. Uh, was that for a lack of trying? I don't think it was from a lack of trying, but I think there has not been a real mandate to make drug trials and other Alzheimer research more diverse and more representative of the general population. I just want to point out we have no idea for such few individual black individuals in that drug trial whether the drug works for them or whether the side effects are the same. We just don't understand, and yet the drug is approved for giving it to all people, even though people haven't been in the trials and we don't know how it works. Right, and so just to piggyback on to what Dr. Morris mentioned, when we look at those clinical trials, and that's one reason we're doing the other work with the NIA grant that we just received funding for, is to to understand the complexity of not only um, the why people aren't being asked to participate in terms of people from my community, um, African Americans, and those within the African diaspora. Like, why are we not being asked? And if we are being asked, why aren't we continuing our participation, you know, re- retention? But also thinking about um, how can we really generalize our findings to bigger other communities if we aren't included. So that means some educational pieces even around um, what we call health research literacy. We talk about functional literacy, whether or not someone can read and write, health literacy, whether or not someone understands health information that they're given in a clinical encounter, and then research, health research literacy, do they understand all the components and the dynamics related to be a part of a clinical trial. And so one of our first aims in our grant is really thinking about the community and cultural needs around research literacy, and then thinking about the barriers and the benefit of enrolling into clinical trials. And then we think even about the blood test that's that's out there. I think that that's going to be pivotal in changing those early diagnoses. You know, because it's a blood draw. We all get our blood draw when we go go in to get cholesterol screenings and other preventative measures. So that will be amazing to happen. Um, Alduham, the the medication that Dr. Morris mentioned, even the cost was astronomical. Recently, the company that did the trial um, is lowering the cost. However, it still, it still may be out of the price point for certain patients if it's not covered by, fully covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's bigger than just, you know, what, what are we doing on the patient side, but it also goes back into healthcare policy as well. 
And, and so, Dr. Balsberry, you're aiming to take this on with this new grant, and this is a big thing to take on. I mean, you're looking at, at centuries of conditions that have led to this point, and you have $3.4 million now to try to, to do your part. Uh, how is that going to take form? What are you going to do? So, you know, we have three main aims for the study. It's a three-year um, grant. Um, the first aim is really doing a community needs assessment where we are going to be talking to patients, um, their caregivers, and other support persons, as well as healthcare providers, not only physicians, but other members on, a care, on the care team, to garner some insight of what do they know about Alzheimer's disease and related dementia and the diseases that lead to it, but also what do they know about research participation in this space, and what are some of the cultural things that we need to consider in order to raise awareness about the safety measures that we do put in place to protect participants and the like, and what other measures do we need to do before we actually start recruiting the 2,000 into the trial? Because I think it's very important to hear that community and patient voice and provider voice um, when you start doing research. One, it builds relationship. It's more community and patient engaged. And it offers us an opportunity to, to get outside of the walls of our academic homes, really to engage um, in a partnership relationship as well. Our second aim is to examine the health research literacy materials that NIA is collecting in a research repository that they have of like um, websites and brochures and flyers to see if some of those materials are culturally appropriate to use here in St. Louis. Um, so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. And then, and we're doing that in partnership with Health Literacy Media, um, who's led by Dr. Katina O'Leary. And I'm actually, I'm biased because I'm president of their board. Ah, <laughs> but That's a good reason to be biased. You know, but as someone that lives with dyslexia, literacy is a very important topic for me. Um, and then our third aim is building that research registry, but we want to build it in a way that's culturally appropriate and that's sustainable. So $3.4 million is the, I consider this the appetizer to where we want to be because we want to build a network that's not only this registry where we have people's name in a database, but where they can actually engage and learn information about Alzheimer's disease and related dementia or the other comorbid health conditions that are also connected to one of those diagnoses. And so I think that we, um, you know, our hope is that we receive more funding. Mm -hmm. Our hope is that, you know, that eventually it becomes endowed and a part of the institution of WashU and that it ends up expanding to other disease areas as well. But I want to make sure that I'm being very thoughtful um, with not only my research partners, but the community that I love. I moved back to St. Louis to do this work. And so this is, um, I believe, a part of my legacy as well. So you're not just recruiting people so they'll be on this roster, so when you need research subjects, you can draw on them. You're also hoping this is something where they'll really get something out of their participation. They'll, they'll be part of an ongoing community with education. Exactly, exactly. You know, but the question is, how do you build it in a way that is appropriate, you know, for use, utility, for literacy, not only health and research literacy, but also functional literacy. You know, how are people engaging? And there's been more studies that have been done showing that, um, that our elders are using technology, and part of that shift has been COVID. So how do we continue in that same vein? And then we're also recruiting people in my age bracket. 
And you're which, young. Oh, I'm 47, and I don't That's lie. Young. I yeah. don't, and I don't <laughs> lie about my age. Um, and so, and the reason I don't is because I have to think about what changes have happened in the course of my own health. And so, in thinking about that, and then having um, family friends who have had diagnosis on that spectrum of Alzheimer's disease and related dementia, have they received the best care that they need in order to increase wellness? you know, and quality of life. So how do we, you know, make sure that this happens in a way that's sustainable? So I'm very thankful to the Knight ADRC and in particular to Dr. Morris in recruiting me back home Mm -hmm. and for believing in this work, you know, and giving me the space to think about how do we really move this work forward in a way that is appropriate for partners, for greater partnership. Dr. Morris, what do you see as the implications of the work that Dr. Ballsberry are doing beyond the work she's doing with this community that she's going to be creating? Um, what do you see the implications of that for the broader work on Alzheimer's? Well, she brought up two very good points. One, we have to uh, do better in educating the community at large about Alzheimer's disease. That's one. Uh, number two, we should uh, make research participation much more welcoming to people of color. People probably don't recognize that Alzheimer's disease begins in the brain about 20 years or more before before it causes any symptoms, any memory loss, any dementia. So there's a period of decades where it's building silently uh, and we have an opportunity now with the new medications to try to at least consider intervening when we can detect those brain lesions to give drugs that would stop the process and hopefully halt or at least delay the onset of Alzheimer's dementia. Prevention would be terrific. And uh, you mentioned, Sarah, at the beginning that there's the Charles and Joanne Knight Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, the Knight family endowed the center in 2010 with a remarkable uh, legacy of support. But they've also just given $11.5 million to my colleagues, Dr. Eric McDade and Dr. Randy Bateman, to continue prevention studies, drugs to try to stop or at least delay the onset in dementia in people who are at very high risk for the disorder. So the message is we are clearly studying in our research people with Alzheimer's dementia, but we're also studying people who do not have dementia but could be at risk for developing it unless we develop these prevention strategies. So that idea of a 47-year-old being part of this group, that's exactly kind of this, this age you're in. You're not just looking at someone where it's, it's beginning to onset. Exactly. So, you know, so when we wrote the Co-Equal Grant, we also wanted to, um, to engage people in our research process who were cognitively normal, so no diagnosis. And, you know, that way you're starting early. You know, so if we if given the information that Dr. Morris mentioned, you know, I have colleagues who and friends who have lost who had family members diagnosed in their 40s and in their 50s. So if that's the case, 
you know, I, but I knew we weren't going to get funded if we said we wanted to work with 20-year-olds. I knew that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> you and know, that's fair. And that's fair, right? <laughs> so, you know, but starting at 45 and then thinking about where the clinical trials are going and the promise of those new medications and other preventative measures, I think that we'll have the opportunity to, to hopefully change lives. Dr. Morris, this $11.5 million grant, this seems like such a huge deal. You mentioned that this is narrowly tailored at people who are most likely to get the disease, but I understand you feel like there may be things that will be learned from this that could apply to far more of us. How, how so? That, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and in fact, there are prevention studies with drugs who are being given to people who do not come from a very high risk of developing Alzheimer's, but seem to be developing those initial brain lesions that we know decades later will turn into Alzheimer's dementia. So prevention studies, I think we're going to see more and more emphasis. But I can't underscore enough that we're learning a great deal from the studies of individuals who are at very high risk for developing Alzheimer's dementia at a very early age, often in their 40s. And uh, the Knight family uh, has been remarkable in supporting those efforts. So we are continuing to um, uh, be able to uh, support uh, others who want to come and move this work forward. But uh, the Knights have been at the forefront of this and are a tremendous example for us all. Boy, it is exciting to hear about these things happening. I think so many of us think about Alzheimer's as this intractable problem, something that's always going to be with us. And you two who are there on, on the ground, you're seeing things that must give you tremendous optimism that this is something we can stop. You know, my hope is, you know, in thinking about, you know, the, the new blood biomarker test, um, and the new and the work and the the funding that was generously given from the Knight um, family, I think that we can see some changes, you know, in terms of how we even perceive Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. What does that look like in our families? What does that look like in terms of quality of life? And how can we really partner? in a way that is really appropriate for cultural awareness around prevention. And so, you know, so I'm, I'm really um, delighted that my colleagues, um, Randy Bateman and Eric McDade, uh, received this funding. Um, and it's two people that I, that I really, I love their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that this is going to be amazing that this is, this opportunities are, are present for us now. So, Dr. Balsberry, you had mentioned your own story that you were recruited by Dr. Morris to come back to St. Louis mm-hmm. to do this work in this space. I understand your father was a health commissioner in East St. Louis. Is he the reason you became a scientist? He is. My dad, um, his first degree was in biology and physical education. He went to Lincoln University. I'm in Jeff City, and he and my mom both graduated from there. My mother actually was a family and consumer science teacher, uh, consumer science or home economics teacher. She wanted to be a food scientist, but did not have that opportunity as a black woman during that time. And he um, worked in public health, had a master's in public health, and um, decided to drop out of his uh, doctoral program at Hopkins because they wanted to have another baby. Oh, and that's me. Oh, and so <laughs> you are the reason. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> when I was an undergrad, I started off as a biology major, but I wasn't very successful. 
and I switched to psych. And I remember telling my dad, I was like, yeah, I feel like I'm abandoning some of the some of the things that I want to eventually do. And he was like, not really. He was like, there's some other other things that you can do. And um, and I had the opportunity to train at WashU. And so he and his older sister, Claritha, who was a surgical nurse, um, and my cousin, Pamela Balls, organista, who's on faculty at University of San Francisco, are the main reasons that I ended up um, doing my PhD, as well as my first mentor in epidemiology, Linda Kotler, who was previously at WashU. And so I'm very um, thankful for him. Um, he passed in 2016. So there's um, a lot of pain because I can't talk to him mm -hmm. about the work that I'm doing now. Um, but my mother has saved much of his work, even when he worked in the Missouri Department of Health and St. Louis City Health Department. And I've been going through his papers and even some of the same theories that we use now are theories that he wrote about, but he wasn't. And we published together, I think a couple, the paper came out a couple months before he was diagnosed with cancer. So I was able to publish with my dad before he passed. Wow. And he was, and I, ha I was like, Daddy, you have to be the senior author on this paper. And um, and it was the one of the first times that he had published, other than just writing reports and white papers and things like that. And so it was just, um, you know, amazing. And I'm very thankful for his legacy. That must have been so meaningful to get to put his name there on that paper and, and work on that together. It was. It definitely was. And, and Dr. Morris, in addition to this being a homecoming for Dr. Ballsberry, this also helps achieve one of your goals. I understand this is something you're very focused on there at the School of Medicine, is you want more doctors like her. That is correct. Uh, more doctors, more staff, more research participants, as we uh, alluded to earlier, if we only study Alzheimer's disease or any illness in white people, we'll only learn about that disease in white people. So. The Knight ADRC is committed to defeating Alzheimer's disease, but defeating Alzheimer's disease in people of color as well as in, uh, in people who identify as whites. And I mention a lot about prevention. That means, as Joy Ballsberry said, we have to start studying people in midlife and follow them over time and try to prevent dementia, but we will never give up trying to also understand and defeat people who have already developed dementia. So we have a dual commitment, preventing Alzheimer's dementia when we can, and treating Alzheimer's dementia when it is present, and doing this in all people. Well, Dr. John Morris, this is such a big task, but you guys are making such great strides. It's so wonderful to hear about this work, and, and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And Dr. Morris leads Washington University's Charles F. and Joanne Knight Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. And Dr. Joy Ballsberry, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And Dr. Ballsberry is an associate professor of neurology at Washington University School of Medicine. This episode was produced by Kayla Drake with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.
find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.